You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. Uh, we started a series last week titled Family Matters, and uh, it's not necessarily a family or a relationship series, but we're exploring a relationship that Jesus had with a family. Um, this family was a family of three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And last week, we spent some time talking about this first interaction that Jesus had with his family, which is found in Luke, when Jesus met Martha and Mary at their house. And we saw that Martha was troubled, and she was stressed, and she was vexed about her responsibilities, and she had the best uh, heart, meaning she wanted to do the right thing. She was trying to do the right thing. But Jesus went right to the problem because he's so good. He just addressed the issue, and he zeroed in the issue. If you remember, uh, we spoke about how Jesus looked at Martha and said, Martha, you are worried and stressed about many things. The problem with you right now is that you have so much in your mind that you are missing the point. You're actually missing the one thing that you should be focusing in. So I encouraged you to identify the one thing in different areas of your life. And to begin by putting God first. To putting God, uh, by putting God at the place that He should be. And so today I want to continue this series exploring this relationship that Jesus had with this family. Uh, and we're going to move it to John. And, and, you know, the story continues in John. And sometimes you might wonder why that happens in the Gospels. Why a story that is referred to in one Gospel continues in another. Or, or different parts of the story are highlighted in different ways in different Gospels. Well, each Gospel writer had an audience in mind. Each Gospel writer had a specific uh, a theme that they wanted to cover. So uh, Matthew, Matthew wrote for the Jews, the Jewish people, the people that were familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the Jewish Scriptures, familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah. So in Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the argument that he's making, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Well, Mark, Mark is writing to the Greco-Roman world. So Mark is not necessarily addressing the, the group of people who understood Jewish literature and Jewish religion. He's talking to people who are modern people for their age, uh, people who are connected to just the Greco and Roman culture. So in Mark, you know, he focuses on Jesus uh, and he reflects that, that, that mentality of, or, or, or that uh, um, he, his message is tailored to his audience. And Luke, Luke writes to intellectuals, because Luke is an intellectual, and he's writing to his peers. He's writing to the people in Greece who are looking for the perfect man. So in Luke, Jesus is the perfect man. Probably why Luke referred to that story in Martha, uh, about Martha and Mary. But John, John takes a different take. Uh, he takes a different uh, uh, avenue in how to write the gospel. Because John focuses on the nature of Jesus. 
In John, you won't find genealogy. In John, you will not find a nativity scene. In John, you're not going to find, you know, the, the, the three wise men coming from the east. John begins with, in the beginning, he was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. So when John describes Jesus, there's always this tension between his divinity and his humanity. Because in John, Jesus is this perfect human as well, but he is one with God. And throughout the seven miracles that John shares, Jesus is always reaffirming that he is one with God. That he and the Father are one. And the seventh miracle, the last miracle that John shares, is it has to do with his family. So we pick up the story in John chapter 11. We're not going to read it just yet, but I just want to give you a, a, an overall uh, uh, summary, a one-paragraph summary, because if you're not familiar with the story, it goes like this. Lazarus becomes ill, and Jesus is friends with them. Jesus loves them, so he hears that Lazarus becomes ill because they sinned for Jesus. By the time Jesus gets to where Lazarus is, he had already died. And he had already been buried. And he was in the grave. And four days later, Jesus shows up, tells him to roll away the stone, and calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus rises from the dead. It's a wonderful miracle. And I just wanted to give it to you right now at the top of the message to give you the big Punchline, because when we read a story like that, when we read about a, a, a major miracle that Jesus did, if you are not familiar with it, see, I grew up listening to these stories, so they don't surprise me anymore. But if this is the first time you're listening to this story, if this is the first time you hear that after four days, a guy who was buried actually came back to life, it's hard to believe. And I give it, I, I'll give that to you. It's really hard to believe it. But my, my point today is not to prove that it happened. My goal today is to explore the surrounding elements of this miracle. Because around every miracle, there are points of tension. Around every miracle, there is moments of fear, of doubt. Around every miracle, there is moments of, of, of just unsettling moments that the person goes through. And I want to explore because it, this happens not only with miracles, but this happens with big achievements in life too. And you probably have realized this in, in some, at some point in your life. You've have, if you have reached in a, something that seemed impossible, if you have accomplished something that seemed unlikely, the moment you cross that finish line, the moment you achieve, the moment you get to the place that, that seemed impossible, it's it's... All the surrounding little events are, are eclipsed by the majesty of what just happened. If you, let's say you, you bought a house and it seemed impossible. The moment you buy a house and you tell your family and friends, they are so happy for you. And, and they high five you, hopefully. And, <laughs> and they're glad that you did. But you know, the, 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 the dinners that you didn't go to because you were saving for the down payment... They don't hear that story, and that's not told, you know. If, if it, the, the, the things that you didn't get to do because you were diligently saving up for that big, big purchase, uh, they kind of become the side story. 
You know, if, you, if you're a, 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 an athlete and you're trying to train for a marathon and you finally run a marathon, the New York Marathon, let's say, and you, you finish it and it's a good time, you know, what you did a year and a half ago, it's kind of like becomes a side story. It becomes the footnote. And when we see a miracle in the scriptures, there's a lot of that that happens. But no miracle that I've read has as much detail as this one right here, especially in the book of John. Because when, when this miracle surrounding, actually surrounding every miracle... Like I said, there are moments of doubt and tension. There are moments of, of fear. There are moments of disappointment. But also there are moments of boldness. There are moments of determination. There are moments of deep, deep, powerful faith. And I want to I share with you a few things that happened during this miracle. Because this miracle is not different. It showcases it showcases a, a, an incredible range of emotions. And it shows also what to expect of Jesus in a time of need. And if you're here this morning, you know, at some point in life, you're going to go through these emotions. You're going to feel the things that Martha and Mary felt. You're going to, and maybe, you know, it won't be something, and hopefully it's not going to be something as difficult as what they had to go through. But at some point in your life, you will wrestle with these emotions, and it is a fallacy to think that miracles only happen with people who have unwavering emotions and are always feeling great and happy and joyful and never waver in their faith. Because surrounding every miracle, there is this, this tension, there is this, this, this battle that we suffer. And that's why I've titled this message, The Dark Side of the Miracle. Because every miracle, there is uh -uh, that point of tension. So the first thing we learn from this story, the story of Jesus encountering Lazarus in this difficult situation, is that Jesus will always love you. He will always love you. Now, this may sound like a cliche, because we hear that a lot in settings like this. But I want you to consider a few things with me surrounding this story, because if you read in John chapter 10, what happened, what took place before this miracle was something that wasn't easy. Jesus was not having an easy time with the religious leaders of his time. And it began in the, fe the feast of dedication, the thing that preceded the, the event that preceded this miracle. In the feast of dedication, which is we now know as Hanukkah. It was mid-December, probably four months before Jesus was crucified. Jesus was at the feast, and he was cornered by a mob of religious leaders. And they had one question for him. Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised Messiah? Now, Jesus knew that they weren't really trying to find out if he was the Messiah. What they wanted is for him to say something that would allow them to arrest him because they were after him. So he said, I have told you already, but you don't believe my words. Now, if you won't believe my words, believe my works. Because my works will speak for themselves. And he said, my works will show that the Father and I are one. There goes John again, penning down 
these events showing that Jesus was revealing himself, one with the Father. Well, when Jesus said that, they all picked up stones. They were ready to stone him. And so Jesus pushes back on them. He, he was so smart. He asks them, well, I've done many great miracles that have helped people. I have shown the work of God on earth. For which of these works are you going to stone me for? What are you going to stone me for? Which, which work am I going to die for? And they said, no, no, no. We're not going to stone you for your works. We're going to stone you for your words. Because you were blaspheming. So they try to arrest him. They try to seize him. And scripture says that Jesus fled. He left the scene. He went away. And he went beyond the Jordan. He left the region of Judea. He didn't just leave Bethany or Jerusalem. He left Judea and went beyond the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist baptized him. In other words, he went to the beginning, to, to the epicenter of when his ministry started. And he stayed there. We don't know how long he was there, but he was there for some time. And things were good. Things were good for Jesus there. Because the disciples of John the Baptist heard of Jesus, saw his work, and they said, Listen, John didn't do much work. Like, he didn't do a lot of works. But everything John the Baptist said about this man is true. Everything he said about him is, is true. So they began to believe in Jesus. In, 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 in that region, beyond the Jordan, Jesus wasn't really being persecuted like he was in Jerusalem. But then, Jesus receives word that his dear friend, Lazarus, is ill and is about to die. Now, here's, here's something in the underbelly of this story and the, uh, underneath the story that John doesn't write vividly, but you can, you can grasp that this is what he's trying to communicate. Because what John is saying is this, the, the, the one who came from God... The one who was one with God decided to take your shape, decided to take my shape, and decided to become human and suffer the challenges and the difficulties of every single person. He was tried and he was persecuted and people were trying to catch him, but he was a good friend and he was so good that he would be willing to risk his own life to come and rescue you if that was what it was needed. You see, when Jesus received the word that Lazarus was dead, or that Lazarus was ill instead, and he decided to go, we're going to look at it in a minute. His disciples said, Jesus, they were just trying to kill you. You're going to go back there? So Jesus had a choice to make. He had a choice to make. Am I going to stay here where things are good? Where people are believing in me? Where my ministry is prospering? Am I going to stay here where it's comfortable? Where I'm not being persecuted? Or do I go across the Jordan again? To the place where people are trying to kill me? Are trying to stone me? And go help my friend in a way that will certainly mean my own end. And what Jesus did is that he went to help his friends. See, typically when we think about Jesus loving you, no matter what, 
we think about our troubles. We think about our shortcomings. We think about our difficulties. But what this story tells us is that Jesus, in the flesh, as a man, as a friend, would be willing to risk his own life just to rescue you. He loves you always. And he would do that for you right here today. And because he loves you, because he loves you, that's the first lesson. The second lesson is Jesus will always love you, but he will not always please you. And here's where we pick up in the scripture. Let me read for you John chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. This is what it says. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's continue. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Let's skip to verse 14. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let's go to him. So Thomas, called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. You can sense that there's tension in this passage. There's tension there because Thomas recognizes the danger that they're about to go into. The danger that they're about to suffer. But what I want to highlight here is that this passage actually puzzled me for quite some time. When I first read it, it puzzled me because it's almost as if Jesus waited for his friend to die. Did you catch that? It said, Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary very much. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited two days. He stayed back two days. I mean, this is the guy, this is the man who healed somebody by just sending a word. He could have just commended for Lazarus' illness to leave. But he waited two days. He stayed back two days. And he only went when he knew Lazarus had died. Now, there's something about this story that, you know, brings in a, a different type of application to your life and my life because... After living, having lived a little while, after having heard some stories and, and uh, seen a few more things, this is what I've come to realize. That Jesus waited for Lazarus to die because he loved him. You see, it might, it might sound like a contradiction. It might sound like an oxymoron. Well, Jesus loves him, loved him, so he let him die. Well, sometimes God will allow a momentary loss in our lives 
because he can already see the permanent gains we will, we will have. He will allow a temporary loss in my life, in your life, because he can see the future gains that he has planned for you. I'll share a story with you because that happened to us. Many of you know that we come from Houston, Texas, and we spent some time with a great ministry down there. And, you know, life was good. Life was great. But when we started, when we got to close to hitting the 10-year mark of being part of that church in Houston, Texas, I uh, began to feel a, a sense of disconnection. Like it's almost like my heart was beginning to turn away from the ministry, from the church. And it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't anything that happened. I still love the church, still love the people, love the community, love the friends that we, we made. But I, I couldn't explain what was happening. And, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with people. And if you've been in the ministry, you know that there's lots of conversations about my season is ending. And what that really means is I don't want to be here anymore. And I'm just going to leave. Or... I have been hurt and offended beyond repair, and I just got to get out of here. Or, this is not working for me anymore, so I feel like God is telling me to go, and my season is ending. So many of the conversations that I've had with people, that's what season ending meant. And now I'm in the position, feeling like my season is ending. So I spent a good period of time, weeks, months, just seeking God and praying and saying, God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I'm, in a, I'm part of a great ministry. I'm part of a great group of people. We are changing the world. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling like I'm, I'm disconnecting, like my heart is turning elsewhere, but I don't even know where? What is going on? Why? It's almost as if the passion... The engagement was dying. And it took one trip. It took one drive through Stanford, Connecticut for us to have our eyes opened and realize, oh, oh, this is why we're feeling the way we're feeling. Because I was praying, I was going into the auditorium. They have a huge 16,000 seat auditorium, which is very unassuming when it's all dark and there's no people in it. And I was looking, I would look for a dark corner. Sometimes I would skip lunch and just go in there. And all my knees are all sitting down against the wall. I would just cry out to God and say, God, God, what's wrong with me? God, please help me. I want to work uh, with passion. I want to give my all. And I would go back into the office and give my best and, and try to perform the best that I could when actually I sensed my heart just moving away from what we were doing. But when we took that trip to Connecticut and we were in prayer asking God for the next step, it became clear that part of my life needed to die so that this part of our lives could come to life. And sometimes God will allow seasons and moments and engagements and relationships and dreams to die. Not so that you will never see them again, but so that he can bring it back with a new kind of life. With a new kind of purpose that is for his glory. Now if you live for God. And if you have seen. If you have gone through a season like that. If you have had to let something go like that. 
you will know that it's not easy. It's just not easy. It's not easy to let go of someone you love, of people you love. It's not easy to let go of a job, a career you love. See, we're still friends with the ministry. In fact, our relationship is still close. We, we, they have helped us many times with counsel. And uh, I've been there multiple times and have seen the staff. And, but, you know, we, we left. Like, we're not part of their lives anymore. We're not part of the mission and the vision of the ministry anymore. It had to die. And if you've ever had to go through something like that, my encouragement to you is this. There is a huge opportunity, and this is my third point and the third element that we learn from this story. There's a huge opportunity from the moment of loss to the moment of the miracle. From the moment of loss, between loss and gain, there is a gap. And you have a huge opportunity to engage in the only way you can, which is to believe. See, because if you lose your grip on knowing who has your life, if you lose sight of who is hand, uh, taking care of you, it's easy for you to see the loss, suffer the loss, and give up. This is what happened to Martha and to Mary. And this is what they did. John chapter 11, verses 21, 23. Jesus comes back and he shows up. And this is what Martha says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And some of you here this morning, you are right there. Because you have suffered loss. Now, not every loss fits into this into this context. Some losses are part of life. Some losses are a result of our mistakes. But I believe there are some losses. Sometimes God will allow these losses. And some of you are there right now. You, you suffer the loss. You had to say goodbye to something. You had to look at your Lazarus in the eye and say goodbye. And you had to put him in a tomb and you had to close the tomb and you suffer the pain and the agony of separation and you suffered that moment of, of despair of having to let go of a dream maybe it was a dream maybe it was an investment that you made maybe it was a relationship something that you knew it was meant to be part of your life and you didn't understand why you had to let it go because you were believing. You even had a sense that that was supposed to be part of your life. But it all crumbled down. And you had to let it go. And you had to put your Lazarus in the tomb. And then after you had experienced that, Jesus showed up in your life. Jesus shows up in your life. And you, you are glad. You can sense his presence. You can sense God in your life, and you don't deny that God is for you, but you can't help but feel regret. Regret that your Lazarus is in the tomb. Regret that you had to let it go because if Jesus had shown himself to you sooner, maybe 
he would have still been alive. If Jesus had showed himself to you sooner, he could have avoided that loss. He could have stepped in the situation. He could have restored that challenge. But now Jesus is in your life. And you're wondering, what's next? Well, I'm here to tell you that if you believe, just like Jesus told Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Because we serve a God who calls things that are dead in, back into life. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And I'm here to tell you today that your Lazarus will rise again. Maybe you had to say goodbye to something, but God will bring it to life Maybe in a new way. Maybe it's not the same scenario, not the same relationship, not the same dream. But he will make you rise again and see his life again in that part of your life because it's for his glory. And if you're here this morning and you've had to let something go and you're feeling on the inside, J.D., that's me. That's me right now. I, I, I feel like there are dreams that I had to put away. I feel like there are, there's a part of my life that I had to, I had to say goodbye to. But it, it doesn't feel like it's supposed to not be part of my life. I'm here to tell you that Jesus can bring things back to life. Even if they had already been buried and in a tomb. And I realize that this is, this is a message that, you know, it, it requires a kind of faith and belief and requires you to just hone in to God and to what he has for your life. But that is the point. The point of the story is this. Martha and Mary had nowhere to go but to Jesus. See, and sometimes that, that in itself is worth the miracle. 